You know, as a senior pastor of the church, I end up preaching most of the sermons on most of the Sundays. Uh, let me start out by asking this question. Why do we have sermons on Sundays? You know, what is the purpose of it? Well, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which in, in I guess, simple terms means that in the case of the book of Colossians, which we're starting this morning, the words that Paul wrote to that church in that day were, were God's very words to them. And in so doing, somehow mysteriously, those were God's words that he intended to communicate to the church in every age hereafter. And what I really see the purpose of a sermon is uh, to kind of unpack that. How is God's ancient word to them, thousands of years and thousands of miles ago and away, how is that God's word to us in the present? Um, so I see the job of the sermon is, is to explain that. Contrary to what some might believe, sermons are not the creation of preachers who want to listen to themselves. <laughs> it, they're not preachers' ideas, rather. It's, it's the pattern that we find in Judaism. The Jewish rabbi on every Sabbath day, on every Saturday, would take their copy of the Word of God, read it to the people, and then explain it to the rest of the, the congregation. And that same pattern was carried over into the New Testament, New Testament churches, where the scriptures are read and they are preached. Now, not every church preaches for the same length of time. Uh, sermons differ considerably, both in content and in length. Maybe you've come to us previously from a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox background, and so you come in and you're kind of expecting a 10 or 12-minute homily, uh, and this feels a whole lot longer than that. You could also though, come from the other end of the spectrum. You may come from a conservative Baptist church, and those guys, they'll preach 90 minutes to two hours on a Sunday morning, and this, the 30 minutes that I speak feels rather short. Um, the one piece of advice that I would have for you on how ought I to listen to sermons. It's simply this. It is to say to God, Lord, speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The very words that uh, Samuel back in the temple said uh, to to God, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I I just, I want to hear from you. I can, I, I promise you that sermons are a whole lot better if you don't approach them from the position of a critic or as a consumer, but honestly as a cup that is just ready to be filled by God, ready to receive the voice of God, um, as, or use another metaphor, as clay that is ready to be formed and fashioned by God. Um, You say that beforehand. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Today we begin this new sermon series in the book of Colossians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a small-sized city in western Turkey called Colossae, or Colossae. It's one of the shortest of Paul's letters. It's also one of the most exciting of his letters. Why? He's writing to brand new Christians, to a, a young, burgeoning church that is just discovering what it's like to believe in Jesus Christ and to experience the resurrected life of Jesus that we have uh, already sung about this morning. Um, They're they're getting to taste the goodness of the gospel for the very first time. And it's kind of like, wow, this is amazing. And and Paul's so excited about it for them. 
J.C. Ryle, the 19th century bishop of Liverpool, does a really good job summarizing, I think, why I chose to preach on the book of Colossians here in the fall. The the point of Colossians is Christ. And J.C. Ryle writes, no person has ever thought too much of Christ. Like, no matter how much you have learned about Jesus, sung to Jesus, prayed to Jesus, you and I have not even begun to scratch the surface of the treasures of Jesus. Um, And I realize that's a very reductionistic way to to talk about things, right? Because we all, uh, life is complicated. Our lives are complex. Uh, And yet I truly believe it. Maybe I'm naive, but I believe with all my heart that the solution to all the problems and all the things really is Jesus. And the Sunday school answer that you give as a kid to every question that that the teacher asks you in class that is, that is the answer to all of our issues uh, and all of our circumstances. And really, it's the, you, you have the solutions manual. You have the solution. And it's, and it's your job to figure out, okay, how does, that, how does that work out in my specific situation? But it's Christ. It's always Christ. And I pray that as we go through the book of Colossians this fall, God would allow us to see Christ, to savor Christ, in order to grow into full Christian maturity by planting our roots down deep into the gospel of Christ's grace. Let's read now from Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's saints in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Three points that I want to make to you this morning, uh, or three areas that I want to look at. Paul's location, Paul's greetings, and Paul's thanks. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Well, you kind of kind of let the cat out of the bag right there in the sermon title on the page. He is writing a hundred miles away in a dark, cold jail cell, most likely located in the city of Ephesus. I think Paul was in uh, imprisoned in Ephesus years before he was later imprisoned in Rome, and I think he's writing this from Ephesus. Paul had never visited the city of Colossae. Now, most of his church planning efforts in the ancient world, he would go to the largest, most metropolitan, cosmopolitan centers of, of, of Asia Minor, Turkey, mostly. Uh, but Colossae was not one of those big cities. It was kind of a smallish, sort of backwaters place. He never visited there. Instead, what we think happened, Paul trained this guy who we just read about. His name is Epaphras. Epaphras was the church planter, and he planted two churches in the regions, one here in Colossae 
and one in Hierapolis, which was the larger city about 10 miles away. So there's good news that comes to Paul in prison. Epaphras says that there's a new church that I planted, and it's full of brand new believers who who are eager to grow in the faith. And that must have been a tremendous encouragement to Paul. I mean, if you ever taught somebody something and then seen them go out and accomplish the very thing you taught them by, I mean, for Paul to train a church planter, that guy goes and he plants not one but two churches, that had to be immensely encouraging to them. And these churches were doing fairly well, it seems like, although there were still problems. (laughs) Every church has problems. You wouldn't have a New Testament if the church didn't have its problems. We'll talk about the problems in the Church of Colossae as we go through the sermon series. Uh, It seems as though there are false teachers who are creeping into the church and who are tempting the church to abandon the simple message of the gospel that had been sown among them on for uh, the worship of angels and just all kind of weird mysticism. And we'll talk about it throughout throughout the fall. But the big question is, how did Epaphras tell Paul this, this news? Um, and as far as we can tell, either Epaphras got back to the city of Ephesus and he told Paul, and then Epaphras was arrested, or Epaphras was just already arrested, and when Paul was arrested, then he comes into the, cell, the jail where Epaphras is arrested. And long story short, both of the guys are in prison, Paul and the church planter, which if you have young, fledgling startup churches in a region, and then you take out the apostle and the church planter, that really, that creates some significant problems for the church, doesn't it? I mean, there's a power vacuum uh, that, that, that exists, especially dis- discouraging when, a, when you're in a time where false teachers are creeping into the church. So when we read the book every Sunday, what I I don't want you to imagine is Paul at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee, reflectively musing about this and that. No, he's he's dictating this letter from a prison cell. In fact, at the very end of the letter, he he will sign his own name, essentially, to the letter and say, this is Paul, I'm writing in my own hand. The last haunting words of the letter are, remember my chains. There were manacles on his wrist. Do you realize that one quarter of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament were written from prison cells? What does that tell us about God? And what does that tell us about Paul? Well, what it tells us about Paul is we assume he was really busy and he didn't have a whole lot of time to write, <laughs> except when he was imprisoned. And so prison, as cold and dark and damp and as discouraging as it might be, afforded him the opportunity to actually compose his, his thoughts and write them down for the rest of the church. What does it tell us about God? Well, it tells us about God is, you know, God, you are confusing. Why do you do things this way? God's ways always look so muddled to us from our earthly vantage point. Um, You would think that a being of limitless power and scrupulous sovereignty, that he would, if he's doing something in the world, we know the the quickest distance between two points is a straight line. And you would think that if God is actually doing something in the world, that he he would go straight and not zigzag. And why would you throw your apostle and your church planners in jail, Lord. Um, 
But when God does business in this world, there are cul-de-sacs, there are U-turns, because his ways are so strange. He throws his servants into jail and causes them to, and causes life to go just in the opposite direction that one thinks it ought to go. And I find that immensely comforting when we consider just kind of the mess of our own lives. One of the best pieces of advice I received in seminary was from one of my counseling professors. I think I've said this before, but he said, Brad, one thing you need to remember is to treat everyone like their heart is breaking because it probably is. You you need to go out into the world with the assumption that people under the surface are struggling with serious trials. And what you find is often the fastest way into another person's life is just being a sympathetic and empathetic ear to listen to what's going on underneath the surface, listening to people where they are at. I say all of that because what I love about the prison epistles, what's so great about the prison epistles, or epistle is just another word for letter, is they serve as a reminder, God works in jail, you know, Yes, there's room for sorrow in this life, and there's room for pain in the Christian life, but there's no room for hopelessness, and there's no room for absolute pessimism, because our God is the God who works out of the jail. Um, and we know that most unmistakably because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross being the preeminent example of God taking the horrible and using it for his people's good. So, Paul is in prison. The church planner is in prison. But in that dark, cold, lonely place, God is writing holy and inspired scripture that was for them and for us. It's something so critical for us to remember when we look at our lives. Secondly, Paul's greetings. If you have some familiarity with the New Testament, you know that the beginning of Paul's letters to the churches. They're very formulaic. Uh, He usually talks about his apostleship. I'm an apostle. I'm a special envoy from God. Uh, um, I've been sent by God to bring this message to you. He he always says grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you've read read it, you know, a half a dozen times, a dozen times, it kind of sounds like, dear Mrs. Johnson, comma, how are you doing? Fine. It, It feels so formulaic. We just skip, we skim right through it. And that's a shame because we miss what would have immediately stood out to his original audience. And that is, he deviates from the rhetorical pattern of letters in that day. Instead of writing, I am Paul, greetings to you who are in Colossae with the Greek word karain. Instead, he always writes grace, charis, charis, and peace. To you who are in Colossae. That is the way he begins every one of his letters. I think of um, a a soldier, maybe in World War II. He finally gets a letter from home. And it's not merely a letter from his mother. It's a letter from his fiancée. He uh, unfolds the the envelope and he pulls it out. And what what does he do? He smells the letter because she she has sprayed her perfume on that letter. And what I really believe, church, is that every one of Paul's letters has this fragrance of grace and peace. I've said before that I I really, I think grace and peace, especially grace, you can just smell it. You can smell it in a place. You walk into a home 
a, a Christian home where there is, there is love and there, where, where, um, where there's just deep love there. And you can, it's like there's a, a diffuser, an air diffuser with cloves that's inside the house. When you walk in, you smell it. You can smell great grace and peace in a place. And you can smell grace and peace in a church. And you can smell grace and peace in people's lives. You can also, you know, notice when it's absent. So here's what I, I want to say to you. Um, please, please welcome people um, here. Like when you're walking through the lobby and you see somebody you, you haven't seen before or you you run into somebody who's, he or she is just alone out there or alone back here, would you just please welcome them with the welcoming love of God? Because, because that is the fragrance of grace and peace. Um, and I think what maybe ends up happening in Presbyterian churches with really formal liturgies like our own is sometimes we just get so tightly wound up <laughs> and there isn't so much just the ease and the comfort of, of grace and peace in a place. But we can do that. We should do that. Because that's exactly what has been extended to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. In fact, like there is, if you have grace, there must be peace. It's a misnomer to say, I, I, I'm a man who's experiencing deeply the grace of God, and yet there's no peace and there's no warmth in that life. Great peace flows from God's grace. And so I, I dearly want us to be that kind of church where somebody walks in and experiences the welcoming love of God. Uh, I know that I've heard kind of for two responses to the passing of the peace that we've instituted uh, the last few weeks. Some people just love it. They love the fact that we are, are doing this as part of our worship. And then others just can't stand it for a variety of reasons. And some of those reasons are, are valid. But I just wonder, I, I'll challenge you to consider this. Could it be that God is every bit as interested in us showing, sharing the peace of Christ with a neighbor on Sunday morning? He's every bit as interested with that as he is with our singing and with our praying and with our, um, you know, all of our Sunday activity. Like, I really do think it's a critical part of worship, um, you know, somebody should be able to walk through these doors and smell grace and peace on the air because that is what the gospel brings to us. You know, in America, I'll say this last thing and I'll move on. A, a lot of people approach going to church in America kind of like going to a movie theater. You sit down, you watch something on the screen. You don't talk to anybody. You don't talk to someone sitting next to you either before the movie or after except for the people you walk in the door with originally. But church should never be a movie theater, should it? Because this is the family of God. We, are the, we have such an opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ to be the family of God, not only on Sunday mornings, but you know, in our community groups through the week. We want them to be places of tangible love, of grace and peace. Now, finally, and closely related to that, Paul's thanks it's interesting in verse 8 to see what Paul focuses on when he tells them how he heard about their new church. In verse 8, if you want to look there, he doesn't say that he's heard about their new learning and wisdom, though he does, of course, want them to grow in understanding and wisdom. But that's not the telltale sign of their church. 
He doesn't say he's heard about their newfound holiness and obedience to a strict moral code, though he does indeed want them to live in a new sort of life. He puts his finger on the key thing in verse 8. He says, Epaphras has told me about your love in the Spirit, and that is the sign. That's always the sign, your love in the Spirit. You know, love doesn't mean that we're going to all have good feelings about each other. We may or may not, but what matters is that the behavior which marked out their previous way of life, the way of the world, the way of lust and anger and lies and so on, which split up families and communities, is being replaced by love in the Spirit, by kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and love. Uh, And this was especially important because you had major differences, uh, socioeconomic differences among the people of the congregation. You had major race differences between Jew and Gentile. But as far far as Paul was concerned, the true sign that God was was at work was a love not restricted to those whom one has a natural affinity for, but which extended to all the saints. And he says, I'm just so thrilled and grateful to God to hear about your love in the Spirit. The other thing that Paul is really thankful for, uh, he says it, is it in verse 5? Or maybe also in verse 6. He says, the gospel is spreading all over the world. What was the one indicator the gospel was spreading all over Turkey, all over the Mediterranean world at that time? New churches were being planted. New churches were starting. That's how you know the gospel is spreading. New churches that manifest the resurrection life of Christ, that, that are caught up in this great triad of faith, hope, and love, new churches spring up when, when, um, when Christ's life is known. And I'm absolutely convinced, friends, that the, the best, most effective strategy for having the gospel reach our city is in new church plants. Um, I, I've become entirely disenchanted with the megachurch model. We've seen a bunch of megachurches over the last five years just implode because you know, kind of they're centered around one charismatic leader, kind of a cult of personality, and when that guy blows up, the whole thing blows up. I don't believe that's the strategy. Um, you know, when we made our decision, a difficult decision, to sell our property up off Bogus Basin Road and move out to the Ambrose School, some people... I heard the voices. Some people said, well, the reason they're doing that is because the pastor lives in Meridian, and, and he, wants, he, wants, uh, he wants a shorter drive. Um, and some people said, well, the reason they're doing that is they're chasing the money. They're chasing the money. There's a lot of money in Meridian and Eagle, and there's a lot of money at Ambrose, and um, they're just going after rapid church growth. Um, and maybe that was our reason. Uh, I mean, I, I know... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I know the, the deceitfulness and wickedness of my own heart, that I could, we could have made th- our decision based entirely on those selfish reasons and just not even known about it. But as far as I understand my own motivations, the motivations of the leadership in our church, I mean, honest to God truth, the number one reason why we sold and we moved was so that we could plant new churches in the city. We really believe that that is a tremendously fruitful strategy. Um, we want to plant new churches. And so I am thrilled to announce that at the end of this month, the last Thursday, Friday of September, 
the Pacific Northwest Presbytery, the Presbytery, the, the regional body that our church is a part of in the Presbyterian Church in America, is going to be extending a call to a church planter to come to Boise and to plant a church in downtown Boise, in downtown Boise as we have been planning and, and hoping for. So we will have, I'll be able to tell you on the last Sunday of this month, once it's a done deal, who that man is, who that family is. Um, we are so excited about the possibility of planting this church in 2019, and um, we set aside the money for it. We set aside a, a, a lot of a large sum, and um, and we're doing that because we really believe that's the, the best strategy for reaching our city. Um, let me conclude though with a remarkable story I heard this week. Now, what have we talked about so far in the sermon? Well, we we talked about Christ. We talked about how God does good things in difficult and bad circumstances. We've talked about how grace and peace are the, the fragrance in a place. We talked about how the defining characteristic of the gospel in a church is love that is there. So we talked about kind of basic sort of stuff. Well, do you know who Jack Grout is? Probably not, unless you're a big golfer. Jack Grout was the longtime golf coach of Jack Nicholas. So before there was a Tiger Woods, there was the greatest of all time, who's not Tiger Woods, there was the greatest Jack Nicholas. And at the prime of his career, each year, Jack Nicholas would go visit Jack Grout in Ohio, and he would come up to him, or he would you know, walk in the door and say, Mr. Grout, I'd like to take up the game of golf. What do I need to know? And Jack Grout would say to him, the first thing you need is a sound grip. And he would teach Jack Nicholas how to grip the golf club. It was kind of that Vince Lombardi at the beginning of football season every year, holding it up and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Here is Jack Nicholas, more majors than anybody else, and he's being taught how to grip a golf club. And then he says, and the next thing you need to know is posture. You need to get the right posture. Everything in golf flows out of grip and posture. If you get those wrong, nothing's going to go right. If you get those right, everything will flow out of it. It takes a certain level of humility for a guy like Jack Nicholas to go to another person and act like he doesn't know anything and, and about the golf swing and say, how do, you, how do you put a club in my hand? And how do you stand addressing a ball? It takes some humility, right? Well, no, not, not so much. Because if you know anything about Jack Nicholas, Jack Nicholas was a confident dude. He was, he was not known for his humility. He was, he was confident. No, it was a case of he was convinced that grip and posture mattered so much, so much. You had to be sound in the fundamentals, and they were then going to carry you through when, pressure, when under pressure playing in tournament golf. And I, again, I go back to grip and posture, grace and peace, love, Christ. What I hope as we move through the book of Colossians is that God will teach us over these next several months, um, the simple things are what we need. The centrality of the gospel of grace, that is what we need the most. It may not be new and it may not be novel, but it's exactly what this ancient church needed. And it is exactly what we need to dig our roots down deep into the gospel of grace that is found in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen.